RPC Radio. Radio. Hello, you're listening to Insurance Covered. Welcome to the podcast that covers anything and everything to do with insurance. Coming up in this episode. Insurance is always a political force and sometimes insurers don't like to think about that and sometimes they're not sure about the way that they are political. Sometimes they're trying to hide it. But insurance is a risk management practice and government is a risk management practice. My name is Peter Mansfield. I'm a partner in the law firm RPC and in each episode I'm joined by a guest and we discuss an aspect of the wonderful world of insurance. And this week we have Hannah Farber and we're going to discuss the role that insurance played in the foundation of the United States. Hannah is Assistant Professor of History at Columbia University in New York and she specialises in the political economy of colonial North America, the early American Republic and the Atlantic world. She was awarded her PhD from Berkeley and the title of her dissertation was Underwritten States, Marine Insurance and the Making of Bodies Politic in America 1622 to 1815. And in 2021, she turned this dissertation into a book entitled Underwriters of the United States, How Insurance Shaped the American Founding, which is what we're going to discuss today. So Hannah, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. So in this episode, we're going to kind of look at a a historical event, which is obviously very dear to your heart as an American, which is uh, that the Declaration of Independence on the 4th of July, uh, 1776, uh, the War of Independence and the Foundations of America. But it is important for you to know, Hannah, that uh, as a topic of history, it is largely ignored by us on this side of the Atlantic for reasons which I suspect are fairly obvious. So, Hannah, in order to kind of put the rest of our discussion in some sort of context, please could you give us a whistle-stop tour of American history from, say, 1750 through to sort of 1812-ish, that sort of period? So Britain develops this sort of magnificently powerful tax-raising and war-making apparatus beginning beginning of the 18th century. Britain fights bigger and bigger wars. Uh, American colonists become more and more involved in those wars, sort of culminating in the Seven Years' War around the middle of the 18th century. And American colonists are deeply involved in this war. They're very excited to be British and to be a part of these wars and to fight the terrible French. And Britain wins this giant war, and there's sort of this big feeling of, of now what? Um, and you have insisted to me that uh, British folks don't necessarily know this from their history. We, you go from the Tudors to World War II. So I'll just say that uh, British government officials at the end of the Seven Years' War realize how much debt they're in from fighting this big war. They see that the American colonies have prospered, that they have this tremendous production capacity, that the colonies have grown uh, into these sensitive backcountry areas that are going to require a lot of military defense going forward. Uh, and they see the bill for all of this and they say, well, <laughs> maybe these Americans should be paying a little bit more of the taxes for their own upkeep. And so when I teach the history of the American Revolution, I teach about the unrest coming from there. So the American colonies sort of for their own somewhat different reasons become dissatisfied with British rule. They become outraged at the sort of tax enforcement and 
the insistence by parliament that it has the right to pass laws for the colonies. Um, and it'll, all of this sort of rolls into the revolution. Now, from the perspective of political history, like you said, the big famous date is July 4th, 1776. But another way that I talk about this period as a scholar of politics and economy is that 1776 is, is just one moment in this big independence process, which also involves waging wars. Waging wars involves raising money. It involves taking risks. It involves diplomatic alliances. It involves being able to defend the claims that you make. So as Americans become insistent on their own independence, they're fighting a war to maintain this independence. They also have this tremendous obligation that they're very aware of to prove that they really can act as an independent country. If they want loans from overseas, they have to look like an independent sovereign power that will be able to repay its debts. So as soon as the United States declare their independence, they are suddenly under this immense obligation to prove themselves in the world, to demonstrate that they'll be able to raise revenue from their own subjects, now citizens. And part of this process is getting the commercial world on board with this story that American independence is credible. So the world that my book looks at, the world of the sort of decades leading up to the American Revolution, especially the decades after the American Revolution, is a world in which international financial powers are watching the United States. They're seeing it as an investment opportunity during the war and thereafter, and they're seeing it as a risk. There is a risk that a new independent country will not be able to pay its debts and so the, the figures who are central in my book are part of this, this risk management community that's both international and domestic for the United States that's trying to figure out who should take the risks of American independence broadly conceived. Um, and we're going to be discussing in particular the role that uh, insurance and particularly marine insurance played in these historic events. But let's kind of look first, in order to put that into a little bit of context, let's look first at the situation before the, the War of Independence began, at a time when, at the time when the states were not united, and they were instead all colonies, all separate colonies un, under British rule. So to what extent could you say that there was a domestic insurance market in the American colonies at all? At that, at that point, pre-1776, pre-the-revolutionary pre period. Right. So there is not a ton of insurance as formally defined in the American colonies before, say, the middle of the 18th century. So Americans in the 18th century tended to get their insurance along with the rest of their financial services uh, wherever they're doing business. And, and a lot of this insurance comes from London, but not all of it. So Americans don't see anything particularly problematic about getting insurance overseas. So it's just not particularly a, a concern. Some Americans, even before the revolution, prefer to buy insurance closer to home. And there are smaller insurance brokerages that set up shop in the major American port cities at that time, Boston, New York, Philadelphia. Uh, and these are communities of local merchants who understand the advantages of doing business with one another. 
Because even though everybody says insurance operates the same way everywhere, there is a good deal of advantage in having that potentially litigated close to home in a community of folks who you know uh, by reputation, if not face to face. Let's move on to the, the, the revolution, the revolution and how the insurance world changed, really, because obviously there's a lot of the pre-revolution, the Americans regarding themselves as British. So even the likes of Washington would have regarded himself as as a Brit, as as British. Um, so and therefore there's a, a good reliance upon British insurers. But how did that change once the War of Independence was underway? And presumably British insurers became less. It, they, they well effectively they became the enemy in many ways. So how did insurance as insurance? influenced the direction of the war? And how did the war influence the development of insurance in in the United States? When war breaks out, sophisticated American merchants and British insurers don't necessarily, oh no, what a great tragedy, my countryman is now my enemy. They say, hmm, this is interesting. I wonder what the lawyers are going to say about this. Because uh, for one thing, Britain is for a while, quite invested in this idea that the what we now call the American Revolution is just an internal revolt, because then, according to the law of nations, other countries like France should not get involved because it's just an internal conflict. That would be against what passed for international law back then, whereas the Americans are frantically trying to broadcast that they are instantaneously an independent sovereign power because that's going to allow them to get international sympathy and international sympathy is going to allow them to get money. Now, the insurers are just looking to see which way the wind is blowing at first. And the other interesting that's happened, I think that's happening during the revolution is that international observers are looking at the insurers to determine what they think about this conflict. You might not necessarily trust what the government tells you about how the war is going, but insurers have this funny status as outsiders that people really pay attention to. Another thing that happens during the revolution is that American merchant groups start joining together to manage their own risks. Again, because they don't have so much of a navy to protect their own ships, uh, Americans do this funny thing where the new American government, which is just kind of made up, it issues licenses to privateers who are just merchant ships with guns. So again, <laughs> we have we have this fantastic moment where a country's just sort of been invented and then it decrees, ah, yes, I yes, we are now the independent, you know, Continental Congress, and here are some privateering licenses. So they hand them out to American merchants. American merchants go and they're like, you know, trading to the Caribbean. But if they see some British merchant ships along the way, they'll shoot at them and chase them and see what happens, see if they can take some stuff. Um, And the funny thing is that a lot of the risk management of these privateer ventures is handled as insurance. So you might not own a vessel. Maybe it's your brother-in-law's. Maybe it's somebody else in your town's. But you might want to take a piece of the risk of that voyage by insuring it. So it's a funny thing to think of insuring a privateering voyage, especially because some of these insurance rates are very high, 50, 60 percent premiums. The idea is that if lucrative captures are made, this is going to pay off for you. So very swiftly during the war, American merchants who are, who are quite savvy, they know how insurance works. They use the structure of insurance to, uh, they sort of snap it into place to manage their offensive and 
defensive practices during the war. And I love, I mean, because we refer to privateers, but really that's just a polite word for pirate, isn't it? <laughs> well, it depends if you think government matters or not. Uh, and there's this funny moment where where no one knows. So does it matter that a privateer has a government license and a pirate doesn't? Pirates tend to thrive. Pirates, strictly speaking, tend to thrive in spaces where there is no political authority. Um, there's an earlier period in the history of the British Empire, a golden age of piracy, when, uh, when when the British Empire is quite enthusiastic about pirates and their ability to distress the Spanish and to oh, function in these absolutely right, to function no, we're, in we're, these great areas. We're, we're, we were big um, into it. So, so Francis, <laughs> so Francis Drake and people like that were, were great pirates. Yes, and then you really change your mind about that and you start hanging them by 1700. But I think that the, <laughs> the, the, the praising versus hanging pirates index is a really useful vantage point on how functional your government is. The American Revolution, piracy is not really much of a phenomenon because, again, the, the Americans come into the revolution with these functional legislatures that already tax they already have this set of underlying beliefs about their rights, about their political practices, all of it's sort of in formation. But there has to be this, you know what the word is for this, this sort of rolling reinforcement practices where the government declares itself to be real, but then it has to do real governmenty things like raise taxes, uh, buy warships, um, borrow money. And then if it does those things successfully, it can establish more credibility. So this is why I really see the American Revolution as this longer period than the period of formal war, because there is this real possibility that the United States could become failed states. And what my book says is that it's these savvy international observers, both foreign and domestic, the insurers, who see that the United States itself is a major risk, but a lot of them choose to take on that risk. Um, in your book, you highlight the role played by a guy called uh, Robert Morris, who bizarrely, one of my colleagues is called Robert Morris. So whenever I see his name, I, I get slightly put off. Um, but, <laughs> So anyway, you, you, by, by by Robert Morris. So you're you're Robert Morris, um, uh, who was, as I understand, a, a merchant insurer, who's one of these kind of early insurers, and also was, as I understand, the the wealthiest man in America. Is that is that uh -huh. right, or is that just sort of a, a, an urban myth? Yeah, I think so. I mean, then as now, it's a little bit murky how you determine somebody's wealth, but he's he's got a case to be made for sure, and was also one of the signatories of the Declaration of, of Independence. So, so talk us through his story and more pertinently, the part he plays in your story, the, the wider story of insurance and the foundation of the United States. So Robert Morris comes out of Philadelphia, where it, which is the most populous American, British North American trading city in the mid 1700s. He's a merchant. He is an underwriter. So he's very involved in British North America's hottest underwriting community. And so he really has assimilated insurance as this risk management practice. When the Revolutionary War breaks out and he's asked to take on this role as the key government financier, he 
I would argue, engages in these practices that show him thinking about the United States itself as a risk. So Robert Morris overseas has to, to figure he has to get you know, underwriters for the United States itself. Like, who wants this debt? Who wants this risk of this new country? You know, and one of the little things that I found, and there's more research to be done on the European side of this, is that the people who take on the marketing of U.S. securities, and this is sort of the first time this has been done in this particular way, are Dutch underwriters who immediately understand this principle of what he's trying to do. They're, they're already government debt markets, but um, they, Morris persuades these Dutch underwriters to like take on the risk of the non-sale of these new American securities that he just made up. Meanwhile, back at home, when Robert Morris runs out of money, and I'm using air quotes here, you can't see it in the podcast, but uh, because it's not really clear what it means to run out of money, but kind of running out of credibility, money, silver, paper that anybody believes in, some of the notes that Robert Morris sort of issues to pay people who are contributing to the war effort have his own name on them. So again, he, so he's literally underwriting this debt that the United States is running up. And I, you know, if I was teaching this in a class, I would put up a Robert Morris note next to an, an insurance policy that has uh, you know, insurance policies from the 18th, 19th century have individual people's names written on the bottom, right? These are the people who are taking on this particular chunk of risk. And so Robert Morris is an underwriter. He knows perfectly well what he's doing. And, and the, when I was reading your book, I found this absolutely fascinating because initially I couldn't grasp why you were focusing on on Robert Morris because I, I come at it from an insurance perspective. So this is a book about insurance. That's what it says on the cover. And that's what I assumed would be inside as well. And because not, not only do you talk about this kind of, uh, the, you know, this, this sort of, you know, sale of securities and underwriting the state as a whole, but you talk a lot about uh, Morris's involvement with the Bank of North America. And I was thinking, what do banks have to do with a book <laughs> on insurance? I mean, what, what's the relevance of all of this? And, but then, and then obviously in later chapters, you, you kept on talking about kind of the link between the banks and the insurers and, and eventually, it took me a long time, Hannah, I apologize for this, but it took me a long time for the penny to drop because I suddenly realized that the, 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 the United States as a country was starting from scratch. It was starting from the very beginning, from nothing. And of course, I'm, I'm used to British history, which kind of where, where different elements of the nation's political infrastructure have evolved at different times and at different speeds. So you have parliamentary politics here and insurance is a separate thing over there and kind of banking is somewhere else. Kind of that's a different thing entirely. Um, and they're all neatly compartmentalized you know, within reason. But in the US, as I eventually worked out, everything had to be done at the same time in a rush. And it was by and large done by the same individuals. So in the US, the insurers often were the politicians who were the bankers, who were the merchants. And it was all entirely mixed up. Is, is, is that a fair analysis of, of what was happening in this period? It's absolutely a fair analysis. What you have is a bunch of individuals who have certain assets, capital, um, political connections, and this um, this intellectual practice that this practice they understand intellectually risk management through insurance um that that 
is a set of assets that Americans have coming into this country that they're setting up from scratch. And so one of the things that they do is set up these separate institutions, banks and insurance companies. They're actually behind the scenes quite closely interconnected, um, but they operate as separate institutions as a way to manage their risk. It, it, it simply works better that way. I want to pick up on a point that you mentioned a bit earlier on and, and, and build on that theme. Because another of the themes in your book is, is the fact that these insurers, even during this period, had a sense of being both inside and outside the state, both patriotic and self-interested. The inheritors of the, the merchant insurer flame from the, the pre-revolutionary days, but at the same time, the children of the revolution, to quote Mark Bolan and T-Rex. Um, so to what extent was that tension always there? And, and, and how did it reveal itself during this period? Right. So insurers do think of themselves both as loyal subjects, citizens of the country where they reside, and also the bearers, the practitioners of this complex old international practice. Now, merchants themselves have no doubts about their loyalty, but they also have no compunctions about telling their governments that what's good for merchants is what's good for the country. And insurers are sort of the arch merchants. That's that's kind of one of the big points I want to communicate in this book. Insurers are uh, experienced merchants in their own right. They are also at the hub of merchant insurance networks. So they're, they have to assess risk. So they're sucking up all the information that they can about the risks of business in various places around the world. And so on the one hand, they're really deeply knowledgeable in the risks of doing business from their particular country. And most of them see themselves as highly patriotic. But at the, the same time, they have they have their own business concerns. And so the United States becomes a country in, in some way that I, I really couldn't visualize an alternative very well. But the United States becomes a country that has to be attuned to insurers' concerns to some degree. So when insurers come to the U.S. government in the first decade of the 19th century, when both uh, French and British warships are capturing Americans for these complex political reasons, but maybe just greed, the insurers are telling the U.S. government, like, look, you need to build more naval ships to protect us. We are American commerce. You have to protect us. Are they right? Are they wrong? I mean, neither. They are... Their vantage point is entirely logical. So, uh, I mean, uh, Hannah, in the aftermath of the war, uh, how did the, the domestic U.S. insurance market develop? Um, and kind of Britain, which is obviously the main competitor for, for the you know in, insurance market, Britain was involved in almost twenty-two years of constant war with France. First, the French Revolutionary Wars after their own kind of revolution in, in seventeen eighty-nine. And then the Napoleonic Wars, when Napoleon Bonaparte uh, of the film is about to come out. Kind of, uh, um, <laughs> Napoleon from the movie? <laughs> Napoleon from the Joaquin Phoenix is basically kind of took over the whole of Europe. Wow. <laughs> yeah, I know. He's amazing. Um, anyway, so, so how did the US insurers, because obviously you, you, you have a small kind of insurance market in America pre-revolution. They develop a uh, an identity, I suppose you'd say, during the course of, of the Revolutionary War, when that with their insurance of privateers and and 
the underwriting of, of the new state. But how did US insurers kind of take advantage and develop their new identity kind of during the course of, of all this period where Britain was at war with France? The short version of the story is that internationally, Americans are profiting from the course of the French Revolutionary and Napoleonic Wars. And domestically, Americans are forming corporations and building financial markets in which those corporations' shares are traded alongside U.S. securities in, and, um, in, in the financial markets. But the real story is the commercial story where I would just describe it as, as opportunism, where American merchants are looking for any possible way they can to keep the music playing, to keep navigating these turbulent international circumstances. Now, who are the masters of these turbulent international circumstances? Marine insurers are. So the marine insurance business prospers since Americans are able to figure out sort of legally, sort of not legally, with very little political loyalty to either side of the conflict, they're able to make profits trading uh, internationally. And as long as they can make profits trading, they're insured, they, they can pay a lot of money to insurance companies to manage some of their risk. And the insurance companies are generally able to stay ahead as well. And in some ways, Americans are just lucky that it's not until the British are done with Napoleon that they can really turn their full attention to this American annoyance. But at this point, the American insurance sector is fully domesticated. From reading your book and from this conversation as well, uh, it, it, it's clear that there was, in the period from 1776 through to 1815, there was just a sense of chaos. I mean, not just within the United States, but geopolitically, kind of with England, Britain and France having a you know, punch up for, for most of the time as well. And, you know, but, but, but looking at the United States, which is obviously what your book is about, kind of, that, that, you know, just chaos just seems to be the word that, for me, that sums it up. And kind of, or, no, actually, kind of perhaps a better way of saying is that, that it, was, it, it was in a huge state of plasticity. It was, it was, it was ready to be moulded in whatever shape, circumstances enabled it to be moulded. And and there's a sense of a lot of people making things up as they go along. Uh, you use the word opportunistic, and that comes across in your book as well. Kind of merchants being opportunistic, insurers, bankers, searching for the quick buck in, in any way possible. And, but, but above all, there's this I mean, amazing sense of a state in its formative stages and, and taking shape. Um, in your book, you say that uh, in the 1790s and 1800s, the state was the speculation. And that seems to suggest that the state itself, the state of the United States, was moulded by the merchants, by the bankers, and by, by the insurers. Is, 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 that, is that the point that you're trying to get across in your book? Yes, that's wonderfully put. Thank you. Uh, everybody was making it up as they went along. It was a chaotic and unpredictable world. Um, but the people who were most expert in navigating chaotic worlds were merchant insurers. That was their business, was figuring out how to find order in chaos, how to make the best bets they could in unpredictable political environments. Insurance was not actuarial in this period of history. It was political. The risks, the biggest risks were political risks, and insurers were 
the preeminent interpreters of those risks. And to the degree that they could, they tried to shape to reduce the risks that they took through political means as well. They were political actors. And this is a piece of insurance history that I, I also hope informs the president a little bit, which is that insurance is always a political force. And sometimes insurers don't like to think about that. And sometimes they're not sure about the way that they are political. Sometimes they're trying to hide it. But insurance is a risk management practice and government is a risk management practice. And governments today still are holders of, of, they, of a set of promises that they've made to their citizens about managing certain kinds of risks for them. And we have seen in contemporary discourse the ways that people are trying to think about climate change, for example, as a, a risk. And who's going to manage that risk? Is it falling on corporations? Is it falling on government, on individual citizens, taxpayers? Who handles that? COVID a few years back was also this sort of massive risk management question. Who's going to manage that risk to health that people faced and, and how? And so whether we see it or not, there is always this risk management dance that's going on between governments and insurers. And in every age, I think we have a lot to gain by bringing that to light. One of my favourite quotations uh, from your book is your recognition that uh, one of the insurance sector's most remarkable attributes is its ability to recede from view. And you also say that uh, kind of part of the power of insurance lies in its very elusiveness. Now, I agree 100% with both of those analyses, kind of the, the view that insurance just does its work unseen and the behind, you know, so, so no, no one's even aware of what's going on and the way in which insurance actually shapes the world around us. But what was it specifically about your consideration of this period that led you to those observations? Well, I think what led me to those observations was the fact that hardly anybody had seen what an enormous business insurance was in the United States very swiftly after independence. And that was even the case. <laughs> that was the case, even though American insurers were increasingly operating through corporations, which were created through legislative acts. They couldn't have been more politically visible but because they didn't have so much of a direct engagement with political life, um, they rarely became the subject of political controversy, even though they had these giant capital holdings. So as I was looking into this period, I was really perplexed about how to talk about what that capital meant and what it did and to connect it with what's even harder to see, which is the giant network of expertise that American insurers held. They operated in a political world that was bigger than the formal politics of state legislatures um, or us, uh, the United States Congress or the dictates of presidents. The kind of politics that they engaged in often did not appear in that documentary record. But it's almost like they were playing politics on a level bigger than politics itself, because politics itself, as I said earlier, is assimilated into this broader risk management universe. But to me, that's a deeply political universe. It has to do with wars. It has to do with trade. It has to do with credibility and sovereignty. So in a way, that's the biggest political story 
that there is, but it 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 doesn't always. In, in fact, it's it's often illegible in traditional political settings. And, and it's interesting in, in your book. You highlight the fact that uh, that this sort of elusiveness shows itself in a physical form. In that the banks uh, were the biggest building in, in town centres. They were you know near classical, big columns, enormous doors, looking very grand. Nobody can miss it. Whereas the insurance companies were in back alleys and kind of you wouldn't even know they were there. I thought I thought that was a you know, a wonderful insight. International commerce, though it's incredibly high dollar, is not a force that needs to be publicly visible. And again, it's often better for merchants and merchant insurers when they are less visible because it gives them more ability to maneuver. Once you are visible in formal politics, people are going to ask, you know, are you a federalist or a democratic Republican? You know, who are you with? Who are you against? What are you doing? It's often more politically effective to to not be seen. And uh, I think it is still true today that the immense amount of money that's at work in, in insurance is not particularly visible. Hannah, I, I, I'm enjoying this conversation and I could keep it going for, for ages more, but we can't. We have to come to an end. Just before I come on to the final question, I just want to kind of tell everyone who's, who's listening. Kind of the book is called Underwriters of the United States, How Insurance Shaped the American Founding. And I highly recommend it. Fantastic read. So kind of if you're interested in insurance history, please go out and buy it from all, all appropriate online retailers. So my final question is, is this. If you remove, and it's a hypothetical question, and I know that proper historians like yourself don't like hypothetical questions, but everyone else does. So I'm going to ask you a hypothetical <laughs> question. Sarah. Which is, if you removed the domestic U.S. insurance market from this period, so if it simply didn't exist in the period from 1750 to 1820-ish, do you think that the development of the United States as we see it today would have been in much the same kind of way? The United States that we have today would have been much the same or would it be significantly different? To what extent did insurance, this is your book, this is your book title, remember? So to what extent did insurance genuinely shape the foundation of America? I think without a domesticated insurance sector, American merchants would still be able to profit, but Americans would not be as financially independent from the international world, from Britain especially, as they became by the end of the Napoleonic Wars. Um, Insurers and their movement to the United States with all the capital and the expertise that they possessed were instrumental in establishing America's financial independence and establishing American port cities as major political and economic centers of gravity. And I think the United States would have possibly remained a somewhat more colonial feeling country. Um, independence would have been less complete than it was in some ways without the domestication of the American insurance sector. Brilliant. Hannah, that was absolutely wonderful. Thank you so much for your time. RPC Radio. Thank you so much for listening to Insurance Covered, which is an RPC production made possible by Joe Burgess and Mary Mitchell. If you enjoyed this podcast, you will also love our other podcasts. Taxing Matters and Money Covered, plus The Fix, which is co-hosted by my colleague Kelly Thompson. 
If you want to be a guest on Insurance Covered, please email me at peter.mansfield at rpc.co.uk. Thank you, and I hope you have a great day.